welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Lauren Evans. And joining us in studio for the first time ever is Harvard grad Anna Lowe. Anna, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So Anna, you work for Heritage Action for America, which is the grassroots arm of the Heritage Foundation. You got your master's at Harvard. And something that people might not know about Harvard is that you all have a football team. Wait, who does it? The Harvard-Yale game is one of the biggest games of the year. (laughs) Yes. That is true. But for those like me that don't follow (laughs) college football closely, I think I found out five years ago that Harvard had a football team. And I was like, oh. We're from Massachusetts. Yeah, I know. But again, <laughs> we just follow Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and everything else is like dead dust. <laughs> are, are you a football fan? Do you follow Harvard's team? I do not. I went to okay. Wake Forest University for my undergrad. Okay. So that's more of a football school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty sad statement. Yeah. <laughs> Another football school I do not follow, I should clarify. So it's, it was my understanding that year we actually had a really good season, from what I've heard. From what you heard. That's hilarious. Yes. Well, since, Anna, neither you or I apparently follow college football very well at all, we have uh, Lauren here with us to give us a little bit of a rundown on college football. So college football, it's officially kicked off. I think Yeah, so the, there's week zero, there's week zero when it comes to college football. Kay. So week zero... It's just a lot of very strange games. There was Hawaii Vanderbilt that went into Oh, wow. It was a close game. It went close. Then there was Navy Notre Dame over in Ireland. And wow. that was a game that everybody was excited about. But it was 42 to 3, <laughs> Notre Dame. So it was not oh a close gosh. game. But now it is week one. So that means that all the teams do play. Games start today, Thursday, August 31st. Uh, Mark your calendars. Uh, if you don't think my calendar has been marked <laughs> since about... December 10th of 2022. (laughs) So there's 11 games on Thursday night. There's another six or seven games on Friday night. There's a full slate of games, 12 to midnight on Saturday. Sunday, there's some games. There's three or four games. And uh, Sunday is LSU-FSU. So that's going to be good. There's only a two and a half point spread on that, which means that they only expect one team to beat the other team by about two and a half points. Oh, LSU is wow. favored. They're both in the top 10. And then on Monday, there's even more football. Oh, my gosh. It's so much football. There's so much football. And I always say this weekend is the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> and that is because not only do we have football starting, but it's also for those up north. If my, my family down in Florida doesn't even believe me. But this Labor Day weekend is the last weekend that the pools are opened. Oh, so you can yeah. watch a football game, go in the pool, oh, that's come back, nice. watch a football game, go in the pool, and that's all I'm going to do this weekend. That sounds nice. like a magical weekend. Yeah, so. Okay, so for those like Anna and I that don't <laughs> follow closely, what are like five names that if we go to a bar and are watching a game, we should know for the mm. big people that everyone's talking about this year in college football? And what are the teams that's, oh, yeah, obviously everyone's expecting them to do well so that we can look like we actually know what we're talking about with, you know, the boyfriends and all of that. So I would say this is the first year where Alabama isn't expected to really dominate. Oh, uh, really? Georgia is really expected to make another run at it. Okay. There's a lot Go dogs. That's yeah. my team. Even though I don't really follow them. <laughs> There's a lot of young talent in these kind of uh, blue chip SEC schools. So a lot of these guys with the transfer portal, people are moving all around and you know you do if you're a good quarterback, you maybe do three years before going into the you know the league. So 
I don't know if I have a ton of names. I really more fo- if you want to know about UCF names, which I know nobody else does, <laughs> I could tell you that. But I would just talk a lot about the transfer portal okay. and how it's ruining college football because nobody stays with the team. It just sounds like something out of an yeah. Avengers movie. Yeah. <laughs> the transfer portal. <laughs> the transfer portal. Uh, and then you can also talk about NIL, which is name, image, and likeness. So that's how college football players can be paid. And you can always, if if a school is doing really well, and you could just say, well, it's because they have more NIL money. It's not fair. <laughs> so. And pull that yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing that uh, if you don't know much to talk about football, just talk about the offensive line. Because mm. if you people, nobody knows what the offensive line does and how, how it works, right? They're all watching the running backs. So if you just talk about the offensive line, they just assume that you're, that you no, really no, know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> that offensive line. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They really got it together. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Lauren. That's very helpful. You know, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a full show, and we're going to be talking a lot more about Harvard today, not just football. But, Anna, we're excited to have you with us. So, uh, Lauren, go ahead and let us know what we have queued up. Up on today's Problematic Women, Anna is pulling back the curtain for us on life at Harvard and what being a conservative student at Harvard is really like. Then we discuss the controversy over Harvard's admissions practices. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find the stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encourage others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Anna, like I said, we're so glad to have you with us. You earned your master's degree in education, policy, and analysis from Harvard University. How did you wind up at Harvard? What's what's the story that got you there? Well, so my whole life I've known that I wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And in undergrad, I studied education and history. But I found myself kind of turning more towards the policy side of education. I always really liked my policy classes and I thought, why not apply? It's Harvard. So I actually went straight from undergrad into my master's program. And I was really hopeful at the beginning of that experience. And very quickly, I came to realize that a lot of my fellow classmates did not share the same opinions or views as me. Very quickly, as in on the first day of classes, actually. (laughs) Started right away. (laughs) Yes, started right away in my uh, core course, so to speak. We actually had to fill out a political ideology survey. It was, of course, anonymous. And the intention behind that, I think, was to show that this program is somewhat operating in a bubble. Marty West was the professor of that class, and he was one of the good ones. (laughs) But I think the intention behind that was to show that, you know, majority of students share these views. So they actually broadcasted the results of that survey on the first day of classes. And out of 140 students... There was only one conservative, and I knew that was me mm. because I had that <laughs> um, majority. I think it was in the 80s out of 140 identified as far left. So yeah, so that was what I was up against, and uh, yeah. So were there, were there any libertarian or centrist, or was it just like far left and then you? Uh, it was pretty much just the latter, far left and then me. I was the only conservative in the program. So in that course, it was really just our ed policy like core mm-hmm. course. So a lot of that class, uh, they instructed us, we had small groups, to always try to have one person play, quote, devil's advocate mm-hmm. to bring in the conservative kind of perspective. 
I was never really super outward in my views mm-hmm. at Harvard, just honestly out of like maybe fear that I might I mean, try to. Like the <laughs> other 140 would yes. gang up on you a little bit? Only yeah. 139 yes. were gang up. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can take them, Anna. <laughs> but I did find myself obviously often uh, taking the mm. devil's advocate position. But yeah, that was sort of my program. So this is education. Would you say all these, all of your former far left colleagues, Mm -hmm. classmates, are they now teaching children? Yeah. So a large number, I was in the policy program, but these views were pretty consistent, I think, across the graduate school of education at large. In my program, a lot of those people either were former or aspiring teachers Mm -hmm. like myself, and they regardless of whether or not they go back into teaching, I, a lot of them go on to occupy very high positions in education leadership, Oh wow! whether that be like principals or like actual policy positions. And a lot of my classmates, I think, were people that I thought perhaps only existed on like libs of TikTok or far right <laughs> Twitter. And I wasn't really. And then when I went to the school and I actually met some of these people and heard their views, I think it was very surprising to know that there's actually people who genuinely believe parents should not have a say in their own child's education. That was like Mm. a very common uh, belief at the school. That is mind-blowing. That is an accepted viewpoint. What would those conversations look like in class? Because it's just hard for me to picture like a 20 or 30-something-year-old sitting there being like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, parents shouldn't have a say in what their children are learning at school. Yeah, the justification for that, that a lot of my classmates sort of like proffered was that, you know, teachers know best, like teachers go to school to study education and study curriculum and they help write it. And that's like educators know best. Mm. That was kind of the justification okay. behind that. Wow. So they saw themselves as the primary um, sort of person to be uh, knowing what's best for a student rather than the parent. How would professors respond to that? It would it depended on the professor, honestly. I think it's easy to sit and say that, you know, all of these professors are corrupt and they're the root causes of a lot of these uh, opinions. Yes, we read pedagogy of the oppressed in these classes. We read, you know, a lot of things with Marxist undertones. These were texts assigned by professors. But surprisingly, I found that a lot of these opinions and more kind of what we would see as like extreme viewpoints, like parents shouldn't have a say in education, those were very much heavily advocated by the students. Mm. The professors didn't necessarily interfere with those conversations, uh, so to speak, but it really depended on the class and the person. Wow. Yeah. And how long were you at Harvard? One or two years? Just a year. year. Yeah. So my program, I took credits over the summer as well, so I was able to wrap up in May. Okay. Yeah. All right, I have a burning question. So, have you ever watched the show Gilmore Girls? <laughs> I actually just watched the first episode last week. So you don't. Rory later in the show goes to Yale. She really wanted to go to Harvard. Oh, plot but then twist. she yeah. ends up going to Yale. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think homework. I really need you to go back and watch the show, and I want to know how realistic that it was as living in an Ivy League. Uh-huh. Like amount of work, you mean? Yeah, I mean, For yeah, they culture. have these like stone rooms that they live and there's like boys chasing her all around and they're always sitting around drinking coffee. And yeah, uh, so uh, I was just curious. Yeah, no, definitely. I did not experience a lot of boys chasing me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not even with a coffee cart. <laughs> <laughs> but 
what? I think maybe part of that's the ed school, too. I'm not sure the exact ratio mm. of men to women, but usually in education, it's a lot more women than it mm. is men. Actually, this is kind of a good segue into the pronoun conversation mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that was a huge part of life at Harvard. Whenever oh, you introduce yourself, you're required to list your pronouns. So you'd say, hi, my name is Anna. My pronouns are she, her. And that was like a like baseline requirement. Mm. We have when, little... when you say requirement, like they literally told students you must do this and you would get in trouble if you didn't? Well, the threat of you would get in trouble if you didn't, I didn't really test that. Um, but yeah, that was how we were instructed to introduce ourselves. We had nameplates that also had our pronouns. That I did test. I didn't put it on my nameplate. I was probably one of the only students in the class who didn't have it on my nameplate. Um, same thing with email signatures. We were encouraged to add that to our email signatures. I did not do that. And I didn't hear any repercussions or real like solid mm-hmm. pushback from that. But yeah, that was a lot of my classmates even had neo pronouns. So not just they them, which is already a massive hurdle, especially around people who you kind of constantly feel like you might be walking on eggshells mm-hmm. with in, in terms of just everyday language that you would use. A good example of that is one time I used the word boyfriend oh. and my, they were talking about how they had met their boyfriends and they I said, you know, they said, do you have a boyfriend or partner or something and I said no I don't have a boyfriend and they were all like sort of taken aback I could see like visibly that they were like oh my gosh and I thought it's kind of maybe arrogant I was like oh I think I guess they're like surprised like, I don't have a boyfriend. <laughs> well that's a nice compliment right and then, and, then, and then after class my she was actually my partner of in the class she said to me that she was like you know you really shouldn't use that word it's gender assigning and it's not no and I didn't know what to say so I was just like oh I'm so sorry because at this point too I, I was not really if that involved in politics my focus was more on education but I was yeah. like wow this is actually crazy that you shouldn't say the word boyfriend you have to try to use plural pronouns which is grammatically incorrect is that um, like your they friend my my person friend yeah, yeah. <laughs> or neo pronouns uh like somebody, I, I don't know. I didn't know this person. They weren't in my program, but they identified as like pain self or something like that. I might even be butchering it because that's wow. not a real word. But yeah, that was kind of an everyday. That's uh, I can't even imagine the minefield, right? That mm-hmm. you can't. You try and yes. you boyfriend. That is not a word. That yeah, <laughs> we've all used that forever. forever. People still use it all the time. I mean, even in Hollywood movies, we're still using that. It's very normal to say boyfriend and yeah. yet majorly offensive on Harvard's campus. Yes. Now, yes. was this culture strictly all students or was this heavily professors too? Who kind of brought that you could see, at least in your department, who is bringing this culture in, who is encouraging yeah. it and furthering this culture? Yeah, I think that's it's sort of multi-layered. I think that to what extent did this start with professors? Like you could go back in, you know, the late 20th century probably and find that professors kind of initiated mm-hmm. a, maybe a lot of these conversations that led to this sort of chaos that we're witnessing today, like culturally. But I think... In some instances, I did have professors. The way I actually learned about heritage was one of my professors in my higher education and law class said that heritage was not a reliable source. Hmm. (laughs) And it was extremely biased and we should not use 
heritage sourced papers and I actually was like wow I better look into heritage (laughs) (laughs) Um, and there was actually a student in that class who openly was bashing the heritage foundation in class and the professor let it happen Mm. so even though they did not necessarily initiate the kind of bad mouthing Mm -hmm. uh, they did not interfere in it and that perked your interest (laughs) and it perked my interest I, I think another good example would be One of my professors actually himself sort of stepped on a landmine, which was interesting to watch play out because he said the word stake. As a metaphor, he said you put a stake in the ground. I don't know, as in a figure of speech. One of the students was, I don't know who notified him. That was an offensive term because many of us wouldn't see it. And I honestly still can't connect the dots as to why the word stake is offensive. I think it has to do with land claims and Native American history, maybe. I'm not sure. But he came to class that day and heavily apologized to the class. So I think that also kind of is what feeds this culture, though. It endorses it by saying, you're so right. I'm so sorry. I should not have said that word. Yeah. So admissions is probably also largely to blame because I think maybe a lot of these students get it. And this is a generalization, but you really maybe have to virtue signal your way into Harvard's ed school to some extent because I worked with people on group projects who could not write a, a paper above a pretty elementary At level. Harvard? Yes, yeah. Oh, wow. And that is all major dependent. I will say some of these people maybe studied math or different mm-hmm. subjects and not history or English. But um, still. But still. You're at Harvard. Yes. You should be able to write. Right. So. Oh, my word. I think admissions is also uh, a big piece of it. Wow. Now, as far as comparing and contrasting the different departments, was Mm -hmm. your program in the ed department, was it a lot uh, further left than some of the other departments that you knew of? Or what does that break down as? Are they all pretty equal? Yeah, I believe they're all pretty equal, being that mine was a policy focus. I actually believe that it was less uh, left than the other programs, which were more like counseling programs or education leadership. I had a friend in a program that the name of it is escaping me, but it was somewhere along the lines of a counseling uh, sort of program. Mm -hmm. And she actually had a homework assignment where if you were a person of color in the class, you had to write an instance where you had been oppressed. And if you were a white person, you had to write about an experience in which you were the oppressor. That was an assignment. Wow. Yeah. So... And their class, their like required classes looked a lot different too. So there was classes, you can look up the course catalogs, they're public. I know that uh, we've done it a little bit with law schools. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. Hans von Spakovsky, expert, he's done some exposing what some of these classes being taught at the law schools look like. At the ed school, there's classes that are called queering education. That's literally a class. Mm -hmm. Um, I looking back actually I think it would have been really interesting to take although torturous <laughs> to take some of these classes and see what's really going on because most of my classes were policy oriented and these conversations were still happening so yeah wow so did you ever find fellow conservatives on campus no I did not <laughs> Yeah. Oh my word. <laughs> no, I did not. Yeah. Do you think it's because there aren't any or they're just so afraid to speak out that they stay hidden? I think at the ed school, there probably aren't any. You can cross enroll in other 
schools, which is a really great thing that Harvard offers. So I should say I did meet conservatives at the Kennedy School, which mm. is the School of Government. One of my professors was Scott Jennings. On he, I think he's a CNN conservative commentator. Mm. But he, yeah, he was a good professor in that class. And there were definitely conservatives in the School of Government, which is definitely, I guess, somewhat hopeful. I would say the Graduate School of Education and probably the Divinity School from a comparative perspective are the two uh, most kind of leftist schools. Mm-hmm. I think the Kennedy School might be next and then maybe the business school wow. in terms of the graduate programs. Wow. And no big deal, just the, the school that deals with our children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And our faith. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, yeah. So how did you wind up then coming to Washington, D.C. and entering the world of policy and politics after mm-hmm. this passion that you have for education? Yeah, well, a large part of that was informed by my experience at Harvard. I think witnessing firsthand sort of the desperate state of education, too, of just especially with the COVID closures, like, you know, who's going to speak up for the students? I realize that there's a much deeper problem when people at the top are all focusing on these sort of culture worry subjects mm-hmm. and not really revisiting that the fact that kids aren't reading in high school. So that sort of sparked, I think, my ambition to try to get more involved in a, a, at a higher level in more policy. And then what sort of led me, I think, to turn more towards politics was my classmates and witnessing mm. firsthand that, you know, these people don't believe parents should have a say in their kids' education. I think that's outrageous. And so that is sort of what led me to to Heritage and yeah. to come to D.C. And it's funny because I still want to be a history teacher at some point and, you know, get back into education. But I think I sort of saw like in my mind, what might be a greater need and, again, learned about it in my law class. And that's the first time that I actually looked up Heritage and I was like, wow, this is really great. I want to move to D.C. and and work there. Love that. Well, we're glad that we have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, Well, stay tuned because up next, we're going to be talking about some controversy facing Harvard right now over their admissions practices. But first, I want to tell you all about a super fun way that you can stay connected with Problematic Women throughout the week. Problematic Women is on Instagram. You can catch highlights of the shows, fun reels, social graphics, and just stay informed on what we're covering right here every week by following us on Instagram. Just look for the bright pink logo. Harvard gives some preference to applicants whose family members went to Harvard, but now this practice is under investigation. Earlier this summer, the Department of Education launched a civil rights investigation into Harvard's legacy admissions process. Keep in mind that in June, the Supreme Court ruled that Harvard or any other university can't use affirmative action in its admission practices. Anna, giving you on the hot seat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you had a lot of classmates you you talked about how liberal they were did you notice a lot of legacy admissions do you think there was a lot of uh, affirmative action going on how did your classmates seem to get through the admissions process at harvard as to my knowledge i'm not sure who, who of my classmates were legacy mm-hmm. admits i think it might be also more school dependent mm-hmm. i know that a lot of people who go to law school, a large percentage of their parents also mm. are earned JDs and same thing with med- medicine. With education, I think uh, many of my classmates, uh, going back to what I said, actually, it might have 
virtue signaled kind of their way in. <laughs> I think that actually plays a role in it to some extent. Mm. But yeah, it would be hard to tell who in my class were legacy admits. I think the uh, undergraduate class at Harvard College, um, something, it's a percentage around 5%, maybe, perhaps. Um, so, yeah. And were students voicing any concerns about the legacy admissions practices and saying, you know, just because your grandparents went here or your parents or your uncle, you shouldn't be able to have an easier way in? Or was mm-hmm. there a thought process among students of, no, that actually should help you and that should be taken into consideration? Yeah, it wasn't. When I was there, this was last year, it wasn't really a conversation that was on the forefront. The focus okay. was more affirmative action at that point. Yeah. I think at this point, though, it is. Uh, there probably is a lot of chatter on campus about that, especially with the curtain being pulled back on them with the affirmative action decision. I think maybe part of the reason Harvard fought so hard on affirmative action was they didn't want this sort of legacy admissions piece of it to be exposed. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think from a my personal opinion on legacy admissions, I'm I, I just like I don't really believe you should be given a bump because of your race. I don't really think you should be given a bump because of your heritage mm. and y- your, you know, wealth. Yeah. Um, but Did- that's that. I don't know if it's yeah, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know if legally uh, there's a strong case for that. I believe the two groups that are suing Harvard are doing it on the basis that it's a violation of the Civil Rights Act, mm-hmm. and they're making it all about race because 70% of legacy admissions are white. Okay. I don't know if that's the angle I would come at it at. I think that you could make maybe a stronger case, uh, not for private schools necessarily, but for public schools that, you know, in the Constitution we say states should not prescribe titles of nobility. So, I don't know if there's a legal argument there, perhaps, of for public universities, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I did look this up because I was fascinated. I think my university has – no, actually, I know it does. It has a legacy admissions regent university where I graduated from. They have some sort of a legacy admissions program. So I was curious. I was like, how many schools have this? According to The New Yorker, there's more than 700 colleges and universities that take that into consideration if mm-hmm. you have a relative that went to the school. So that – I mean, that does kind of make you think, okay, is there something actually – wrong Mm -hmm. with that i i think my initial thought is you know it's it was nice i benefited from the legacy program because my dad was a a grad student at regent university so i'm like well like it was great for me but is there a larger question there Anna? like you brought up of okay we much more important than if your parent went to a school is, are you qualified to attend that school? Do you Have you worked hard? Do you have what it takes to be able to succeed there? But yeah. like maybe there is, though, a place for considering the fact that you have relatives that have invested in the culture of the school in the past. And now you want to be a part of right. what this and looking at it also really practically from a, a donor perspective, yes. I'm sure that's also an element to take into consideration, right? Schools are always asking for money and there would be a higher chance that some of those alumni might give money if you just admitted my child. Right, right. And I think, yeah, I think that obviously plays a large role. And I think that the money piece of it is going to be very heavily highlighted in these cases and all the media that comes from these cases. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I think that meritocracy is really key here, but also who's to say 
you know, you use the word like qualified, like Mm -hmm. who's to say who's qualified? How can we reform admissions more broadly to be uh, kind of more uh, fulsome in terms of looking at test scores, you know, statements of intent or purpose for attending maybe an interview process. That was something Wake Forest required, which I thought was valuable in terms of you know, a lot of careers you need to interview. Um, but everybody has different definitions of, of quality and success. And that's, I think, part of what makes this very tricky. I do think it's a little bit harder to defend legacy admissions in wake of the affirmative action decisions. So I think that there there's probably going to be some pushback there. Yeah, really fascinating. Well, we will be following this as it moves forward, because it is an interesting case. And of course, in light of, as we mentioned, the affirmative action ruling from the Supreme Court, um, all eyes are on Harvard in many ways and how they're Mm -hmm. moving forward, because they set the tone as being such a prominent institution in America and really the world. They really do set the tone on practices for this. So, Mm -hmm. all right, well, stay tuned, because up next, we crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Are you looking for an easy and entertaining way to keep up with the news you care about? The Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels offer interviews with policy experts on the most critical issues and debates America is facing today, as well as short explainer videos that break down complex issues and documentaries that dive deep into the ways policy actually impacts people. Go ahead and subscribe to both the Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels today. You can search for either on your YouTube app or visit youtube.com slash Heritage Foundation and youtube.com slash Daily Signal. All right, it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Kim Russell. Kim Russell is the head women's lacrosse coach at Oberlin College, and she is taking a lot of heat right now for holding her ground and holding on to the truth that women are women and only women should be allowed to compete in women's sports. So in 2022, male Leah Thomas won the 500-yard women's freestyle at the Division I NCAA championship in response Kim Russell posted on her social media that the female athlete who had taken second, but who technically, according to Kim Russell, was the winner, was Emma Wayant. And she said very clearly, congratulations to Emma, congratulated her. And for that, she was called out by her supervisors and told that she needed to apologize But she refused because she said she wasn't sorry. And our friends over at the Independent Women's Forum, they just released a documentary telling Kim Russell's story. Russell says that she felt like her superiors at Oberlin College burned her at the stake. I was told that there was going to be now a meeting with my entire team, with the athletic director, with the Title IX director for our department, with the DEI person for our department and with the Title IX and Director of Diversity Inclusion for the entire college. In my memory, the room was dark. It was very dark energy. And I had prepared myself emotionally because I knew what was coming. Chairs were set up in a huge circle. I felt like I was burned at the stake. 
I felt like I was stoned and hanged all at the same time. It was what I would call the mob mentality where a few people on the team spoke about how much they were upset with what I posted and how dare I post that. She has not been fired, but she says that she feels like she's walking on eggshells. Where did we just hear that? At work. (laughs) But we applaud her for holding her ground. We will leave a link to the full doc in today's show notes. But love our friends over at IWF, the bravery of this woman. And I really think this is a a sign that that, that the tide is is really turning. That it's not just, you know, just Riley Gaines. Now there, there are more and more women that will come out and speak out against this. And once that that dam really starts to crack and to open, it's just going to be everybody. Well, and I think it's amazing that she's speaking out while she's still a coach Mm -hmm. at Oberlin. She has her job. She's putting everything on the line. And honestly, she's almost poking a bear right now. And she's prepared to lose her job. But she's saying it's worth it because I know the truth. And I think there's that defense of your own athletes, right? You know, last week we spoke with the folks over at Fierce Athlete, uh, Sam and Tracy, and they talked about just the need to foster a, a good culture within women's sports and to actually protect female athletes from just this wild culture of transgenderism and so many of the aspects that are really attacking women's sports. So I really... Just applaud Kim Russell for her willingness to put a stake in the ground. We'll, we'll bring wow. that word back in. Wow. Wow. I'm triggered. <laughs> triggered. <laughs> uh, well, Anna, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been so fun to have yeah. you on the show. Thank you for having me. This has been great. We will do it again. But that's going to do it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. In the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, so take a minute to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, wherever you like to listen. It makes such a huge difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.